Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, show us the mercy that belongs to commandment keepers by making us commandment keepers. Thank you that we have your Spirit who enables us to walk in love, in joy, and in peace. Father, by the power of your Spirit, lead us. Help us to be those who do not make or bow before graven images. We know that our culture is the culture of the image rather than the word, and that there is image worship that goes on all around us every day. Father, don't let it be in our hearts, in our homes in our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name, asking that he would help us to pay attention and help me to speak clearly and boldly. Amen. So where does this command come from? It comes, as it so clearly says, from the jealousy of God. The reason annexed to the second commandment is that God is jealous. We'll talk about that next week, specifically what it means that he is a jealous God. But in his jealousy, he claims the exclusive right to determine how he is to be worshipped. The IRS claims the exclusive right to determine whether or not you paid your taxes. God claims the exclusive right to determine whether or not you are worshipping him in a way that he commanded, in a way that he recognizes and endorses. So, specifically then, negatively speaking, the second commandment forbids any attempt to worship God through an image. That is the worst kind of wrong worship. Wrong worship, first of all, is a sin. That in itself is a controversial statement. Many strands within the church, most strands within the world today, assure us that all kinds of spirituality are good. That any sincerely practiced religion is to be given the benefit of the doubt. And if not endorsed, then at least respected. The second commandment begs to differ. The second commandment says that wrong worship is wrong. That there is, first of all, such a thing as wrong worship. That you can try to come into God's presence, that you can try to bring Him honor, and that you can fail. That you can do worship badly. Now that is the first thing we have to get our heads around as we listen to this commandment. If we don't understand that it's premised on the idea that worship can be wrong... The rest of it will make no sense. But it 
is premised on that idea, and God's jealousy says, yes, there is wrong worship, and if I can use the word, it makes God insanely jealous. It makes him want to take it out on your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren when you worship him wrongly. Now we posited already that each of the Ten Commandments cites the worst sin of that kind. And this one is no exception. The Second Commandment cites the worst sin against worship. And that is the sin of using a graven image in your worship. Now there are other sins against right worship. There's the obvious ones. Worshiping God with a bored heart. I'm here, but I wish I were somewhere else. Or worshiping God in distraction. My body is here, but my mind is on menu planning for next week. I'm here, but my mind is on this, that, and the other. Singing badly when we could and should sing better. Making no effort to improve in our skills at worship. That too is a sin against right worship. Or reading a faulty translation of the Bible. Believing misleading statements from false teachers. These too are sins against right worship. They are lesser sins. These are not the most egregious kind of sin against right worship. Imagine if the second commandment said, Thou shalt not be distracted in church. We all know that it's bad to be distracted in church, but surely that's not the worst sin against right worship. God says, no, it's this sin. It is the sin of worshiping by means of an image. Why is worshiping with images so egregious? First answer is that it's a lie about God. You know what really sets people off? Libel and slander. If you're wrong about gas prices, if you're wrong about the current occupant of the White House, I may disagree with you. But at the end of the day, I really don't care. It's somebody else, it's your money, not mine, that goes to the gas pump. But if you're wrong about me, if you're going around spreading rumors, spreading libel, spreading slander, telling people that I am X, Y, and Z, that hurts. And libel and slander drive people up the wall. You can ask anyone who's achieved some small measure of fame, such as our friend who was mayor of right for a time and got lied about while he was in that position. It's not fun. Well, guess what? God also hates libel and slander, and he says every graven image is libel and slander. They all lie about me. Now that's a pretty tall statement. But it's right here in the second commandment. It's also more clearly put in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn there, Paul says this, Oh, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So we're talking the knowledge of God. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and divine nature, so that they are without excuse. When the knowledge of God is present in the world, every human person has access through nature to the knowledge that God is eternally powerful and that he is divine. But Paul adds, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's where their folly manifested itself. In the first instance, was in idolatry. Image worship. Changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The wise guys of the world who knew God, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They manifested their folly by changing His glory into an image that looks like and Paul matches, to some extent, the heaven above, the earth beneath, the water under the earth, with this statement of the birds, the four-footed beasts, and the creeping things. With the birds being in the heaven above, the four-footed beasts on the earth beneath, and the creeping things crawling under the ground, and the water under the earth. That is what the human race has done. Of course, in Paul's day, everywhere... Every city in the Mediterranean world, with the possible exception of Jerusalem, was filled with graven images. Everywhere he went on his travels, he saw roadside shrines, he saw gigantic temples in city centers, he saw devotees of goddesses and gods of every description. And that, of course, was not just limited to the Mediterranean world in which Paul lived. As we know now, that was across the entire inhabited world. Paul says, this is what the human race has done. They've taken the glory of God and turned it into graven images that look like the things around us. Dogs, or cats, or cows, or this, or that. People worship fish, and they worship birds, and they worship rocks, or pieces of wood that fell out of the sky, and on and on. And what does he brand that as? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what is image worship? Paul brands it with the single name lie. Image worship destroys the knowledge of God by lying about who God is. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. They knew God and they destroyed the knowledge of Him by substituting images of things on this earth and saying, this is your God, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's not God. It's a bull calf. Totally different from God. My brother's pastor in South Carolina puts it this way. Imagine, he says, you all know my wife. You've worshipped with her for a number of years. Imagine that you see me on a Sunday when my wife isn't here. A visitor comes, and he's asking about my family, and I pull out my wallet, and in there I have a little card, a little picture, and I pull it out and show him and say, this is my wife. And you're looking over your pastor's shoulder, and it's not a picture of his wife. It's a picture of Kim Kardashian. 
And you think, what is the deal? Like, that's not his wife. And in the same way, anyone who knows God can look at a picture of a bearded old man in the sky and say, that's not my God. Anyone who knows Jesus can look at a picture of a Jewish guy with long hair and a beard and say, that's not my Savior. All of those images, as we know, are made up. There's sort of an artist conception that has become an artist consensus over the centuries, and all the pictures of Jesus may look sort of the same, but that doesn't mean that they are accurate. Pope Gregory in the 500s allegedly said that images in church could be books for the laity. Something like that. If you can't read the Bible, you can come to church and look in the stained glass that has the pictures of all these Bible stories in it. And by looking at the pictures, you can learn about God. But the actual Bible says that images are not books for the unlearned. Images destroy rather than enhancing the knowledge of God. Particularly, of course, Paul said, when they are used for worship. Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say that if you abandon the knowledge of God, you're abandoned to homosexuality and to every other kind of sin. That's the consequence. But the cause lies, he says, in lying about God, slandering God by creating an image, drawing an image and saying, this is my God and then bowing before it in worship. We know God rightly through his word and spirit, not through paintings and drawings. But as we know, even though images lie about God and destroy the knowledge of God, of course, you can't learn Bible stories by looking at pictures you have to be told the story before you understand what the picture means. But leaving that aside, worshiping with images is a historic fault of God's people. As we already saw in looking at the golden calf incident tonight, it's fair to say that this second commandment is the first one of the ten to be broken. Aaron didn't consider himself to be making another god. He said, this is Yahweh. We're having a feast to Yahweh. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And so before the stone even had time to settle, Moses comes down the mountain with them and smashes them right away to say, you people have already broken all ten by breaking this second commandment. Human beings love a God they can see. So far as we know, only Judaism was what the scholars call aniconic, not having images of the deity. Every other ancient religion had a picture of the God or a statue of the God or some visible thing that you could go and worship. We like a God we can manip manipulate. We like a God we can see. We like a God we can control. Why is it that all the pictures of Jesus that Christians draw show a Jesus who's loving us, blessing us, smiling on us, telling us how much he loves us? 
It doesn't take a degree in psychology to figure that one out. The Jesus I draw looks at me the way I want Jesus to look at me. Rather than the way that he wants to look at me. Well, so already by Exodus 32, God's people are worshiping with images. Fast forward to the era of the monarchy, 500 years later, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, makes the exact same thing, a golden calf, except he makes two of them in order to uh, keep the kingdom for himself out of, out of the hand of Rehoboam, David's son. David's descendant. So it's actually in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem because you'll start to think that the king there is the legitimate king and you'll stop following me. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. He literally quotes Aaron's words at the golden calf as he dedicates two more golden calves, one at Dan in northern Israel, one at Bethel, not far from the border with southern Israel, with Judah, and says, golden calf lives again. Worship here. And every successive king of Israel for the next 200 years did the same thing. They all walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He made Israel sin by crafting these golden calves. Well, fast forward once again to uh, the New Testament church. Sometime around the year 200 to 300, pictures started to once again enter the worship of the church. And there's two major ones we're going to talk about, at least quickly. One is the crucifix. You've all seen it. A cross with the little statue of Jesus dying on it. The crucifix is basically the internationally recognized symbol of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Church counts about 1.3 billion members, and the major distinctive of the Roman Catholic Church is the use of the crucifix. Other denominations don't do this. So, rather than communicating what the death of Jesus is really about, the crucifix leads us away from the real Jesus and his Father. How can I say this? How can I judge the heart of all those Catholics? I'm not. This is not about judging anyone's heart. This is about whether, well, about the question of authority. Who has the right to define the content of the symbol? Who controls whether God can be represented in pictures? Does he control that? Or do we control that? And the Bible is very clear that he controls that. God challenges the right to say whether an image is legitimate or not. And he says that it is his exclusive prerogative to okay an image, which he doesn't do anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God says, essentially, that in the battle between Truth and lies, images, including crucifixes, are on Satan's side. Images destroy the knowledge of God. 
they produce misinformation, to use the current buzzword. We can also say the same thing about icons. Eastern Orthodox Church, which counts some 220 million members, uses these flat paintings of Jesus, Mary, and the saints to be, and they call them icons, which is the Greek word for seen thing. In Orthodox theology, the icon brings the presence of the one depicted into the place where the icon is installed. So if you've ever been in an Orthodox church, you know that the whole front of the church is a huge wall covered in icons. And they have not just little ones either, but large ones, 8, 10, 12 feet tall. And the experience of entering the Orthodox Church is supposed to be like the experience of entering heaven. The whole front wall of the church is plastered with icon after icon after icon to remind you that you are in the company of the saints and the angels as you worship God. Up in the dome of an Orthodox Church is always the big picture of Christ seated, reigning with his two fingers out, blessing you again. It's the same thing. The icon brings the presence of the one depicted. And so you are coming into heaven when you enter the church. And there you are with the saints, with the angels, with Jesus himself, caught up into the presence of God. Now that's true. In church, we are caught up into the presence of God, but not through pictures, rather through word and spirit. Thus, It's important to recognize about the Orthodox that they agree with us in part. They say, yes, the commandment forbids graven images. Yes, the commandment forbids all depiction of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But because Jesus was incarnate and was a man and you can draw a man, it does not forbid pictures of Jesus. However, the pictures may not be graven images. They have to be flat images. So they take as the opposite of graven this flatness, which is why all icons are distorted. They're flattened, as it were. They don't believe, they don't use the figural or perspective drawing to give that 3D illusion in icon painting. Because to the Orthodox, that would be a violation of the second commandment. That would be making a graven image. So you'll never see an icon painted in a 3D style. They all deliberately look two-dimensional. Now if you read the text of the commandment, it's clear that it's not talking about graven versus flat. That's why it says, don't make a carved image or any likeness of anything. Two words, carved image and likeness that together as synonyms describe the whole field of what's forbidden, which is all kinds of images. Not just 3D images like the crucifix, which the Orthodox abominate, but also 2D images like an icon. So most Protestants, one more thing about the Orthodox, the Orthodox Christians in their homes usually have a whole wall or a part of one wall dedicated to more icons. They have a little shrine within their house and that is the place within the house for private worship. You go to that icon wall and there you worship God. The saints and the angels even come into your house 
and are there with you. And this, of course, is harks back to or is another instance of the universal human practice of making shrines within the home. Even to this day, in Japan and China and various other traditional cultures, there might be a small shrine to the ancestors at a certain place in the house. And you go and honor your ancestors at that shrine at various times, various holidays, various set occasions throughout the day or throughout the year. The same could hold true for the icon wall in an Orthodox home. Similarly, with the crucifix in a Roman Catholic home, typically our Catholic friends will have a crucifix over every door and possibly more throughout the house, something like that. Now, we Protestants typically don't do that. I've been in most of your homes. You don't have icon walls and so on. But what do Protestants say about icons? By and large, the basic question in the mind of our Protestant brothers and sisters is, how could that be wrong? Maybe it's not something I do. I don't have pictures of Jesus. I don't worship with pictures of Jesus. But what's wrong with pictures of Jesus? And the answer is, what's wrong is, what does God want? Did God say, worship me with an image? And if he didn't, then you shouldn't do it. God disapproves of images. He specifically says, essentially, that if you say, well, this picture of Jesus really makes me think of the crucifixion, and I feel very worshipful when I look at it. Well, that's just the thing that you're not supposed to do with the image. You're not supposed to use the image to incite you to bow down or serve. Insofar as the image of God is prompting you to bow down and worship, it's a bad thing. Something God has forbidden. Now, you can press that too far, of course, and say, well, I have this beautiful image of a sunrise and I see the glory and grandeur of God and I want to worship every time I see that sunrise. Well, that's good. But that's not making an image of God. God is not saying, don't make any picture of anything that exists. It's the double command, don't make it, don't worship it. Making is not wrong, except insofar as it leads to worship. And of course... Within our circles, then, the argument usually comes down to, well, I can make a picture of God without worshiping it. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox say that's silly. We make this image. We don't worship the image. We worship God through the image. Our Protestant friends who defend the right to images will often say, especially our Reformed ones, well, I make the image, but I don't worship. It's just a teaching aid. We're back to the books of the unlearned thing, as though Romans 1 were never written. Anyhow, God says, don't bow with the body, don't serve with the heart. But how does this commandment apply to us? None of us were going to rush right out and buy a life-size crucifix tomorrow. None of us were hoping to ask the Adventists if we could install a big icon wall here at the front of the church. How does the commandment speak to us? And the answer is, in our circles, in our time and place, Wrong worship generally takes another form, and the first form that it takes is the form of entertainment. Our culture is a culture with a lot of leisure time, and a culture, therefore, 
that invests a lot of time and money in entertainment. You read the statistics, like television is on in the average American home six or eight hours a day or something, and you say, how is that even possible? Who sits in front of the TV for eight hours a day? But even aside from that, we know that the entertainment industry in this country is huge. We spend, we Americans spend about the same amount of money on finding oil and getting it out of the ground every year, $100 billion, as we do on making new movies and TV shows, also $100 billion. Now, do we need as many TV shows as we need oil and gasoline? The music industry rakes in about $22 billion a year. So not nearly as much as movies and TV, but still a respectable amount. And frankly, if you go to an evangelical church, what will you see? You will see something that a Martian would have no problem identifying as entertainment. A band comes out, plays top 40 Christian hits for half an hour. Band goes away, slick communicator comes out and gives an inspirational message that refers to Jesus sometimes. Then we all drink coffee and go home. That's what you call entertainment. In reform circles, we have a slightly more upscale version or a slightly more highbrow version that we call, or should call, infotainment. It's not pure entertainment. It's entertainment that conveys important information. Now, this category of infotainment is another huge category. The biggest area of infotainment in our culture is what we call the news, which sustains literally thousands of people who work to find new information about what's happening around the world and bring it to our attention every single day. Now, you can say, oh, that's, that's just information. No, it's not. Or if you just want the information, what do you do? You watch the Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, otherwise known as C-SPAN, where you can see politicians standing there talking. You can read the congressional record at the end of the day, every single day if you want, and see what everybody said in Congress and how all the votes went. Why don't we do that? We don't do that because it's not entertaining. Instead, people listen to their favorite television personality, or somebody like Rush Limbaugh or Ben Shapiro. These people are not, well, these people present news, but they are entertainment that present shows. That's what they call what they do. It's a show. It is a form of entertainment. Now, few churches have gotten to the place where they say, come and see the show. Or, do you listen to that pastor's show? But the fact of the matter is, entertainment, whether of the most basic kind, where it's just fun to listen, or of the slightly more highbrow kind, where there's a certain amount of information being conveyed about something, theological infotainment, Neither of those is what God is after. Worship is not primarily about learning. It's not primarily about being entertained. It's primarily about giving God honor and glory. Now, it's good to learn something from that. But the primary re reason we're here is not to learn. The primary reason we're here is to serve and please God. To do for God what He wants us to do for Him which is to sing his praise, hear his word, pray to him, eat his sacraments, and engage in discipline when the need arises. That is why 
we are part of the church. We are not here to learn. We are here to glorify God. Learning can glorify God, but learning is not the primary purpose of the church. Well, if the regular entertainment worship in our era is a band playing the top 40 Christian hits, aesthetic worship is the ultra-highbrow or high-church expression of that, where everything, the architecture, the aesthetics, is all designed to make you feel good, to speak to your aesthetic sense. Aesthetic worship is a symphony orchestra and chorus playing a Bach mass or a rudder anthem. Now, that's not really available here in Gillette. But there are plenty of places in this world where those who go to church largely go for the music, for the architecture, for the clothes, and the great robes, and so on. Well, essentially, both of these, entertainment worship, aesthetic worship, they're both forms of consumerism. High church, low church, both alike, are predicated on the idea that worship is about what I want. Worship is not about what I want. Worship is not about what I like. Worship is about what God wants and what God likes. So that means, in a very real sense, we need to check our preferences and say, trying to set aside my preferences here because I want to do what God wants to do. Just like a just judge has to say, you know what, I may have my own opinions about the case, about the people in the courtroom, about whether that defense lawyer is a shyster and so on, but I need to check all that and attempt to follow the law and the facts as closely as I possibly can. So we are called to say it's not about my preferences, it's about what God wants. And to say, my preferences are the Almighty's preferences is obviously Silly. God doesn't want everything to be tailored to me. Surely we know that. So consumerism in our circles often manifests itself with the whole only my kind, my age, my set of people. Only people who are in the exact same tiny theological box. Only young people. Only old people. Too many loud children in this church. Too many stuck in their ways old people in this church. Too many single guys, not enough single girls, on and on and on. That's a subset of the consumerism mindset that says, I only want what I want and I want nothing that I don't want. It's not what it's about. So you may think that Rubin's picture of the Trinity is artistically magnificent, that Andre Rublev's icon of the Trinity is fantastic. You may like Mozart or Casting Crowns. The question is not, what do I like? What do you like? Let's vote on it. The question is, let's, what does God like? How can we do what pleases Him? Now we think we've found a pretty good answer to that. But we don't have the final answer to that. And to say, well, what our church is doing is definitely what God likes. And we couldn't possibly improve is silly. So that's why we read and search the scripture and we do our best to check our own preferences and say, I want to worship God with what he says. Singing, 
eating the sacraments, praying, hearing the word. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to praise and worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and spirit and that your words are spirit and they are life. That your spirit gives life and the flesh is no help at all. Free us from the distraction of image worship and teach us to love your word, your ways, your law. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.